everyone. Welcome to episode 53 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Caster-Rappel, and with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. Hey, Chris. What's up? Not much, man. How was uh, Philadelphia? It was a lot of fun. Uh, I ended up teaming with Todd Stevens and Jody Keith again, and we once again came just short of making day two. So a little disappointing there. Jody was playing not Dark Depths <laughs> for once, which is interesting. He I ended caught up a little bit with... of camera time with uh, his Legacy deck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he ended up playing Standstill, which is kind of like, you know, if Legacy's hearkening back to where it used to be, then Standstill used to be like a pretty pretty big part of the metagame. And he thought that it was going to be really well positioned. And he did play against uh, a few Miracles players. And I think that matchup of Standstill against Miracles is just really good for Standstill. Because mm-hmm. you have access to the Manlands, which is really, really important and powerful. And the game's kind of come down to fighting over Jace and, like, you know, Planeswalkers and stuff like that. And then the Manlands are just really good at putting a lot of pressure on Jace, which is nice. So we can kind of, like, resolve our own and then pressure our opponents and then kind of take over from there. But. We found ourselves going to time a lot because Jody's deck just took forever, just kind of like naturally. I don't think that he was playing slowly or anything, but I think that hurt us a couple times. Uh, and then in our, our effective win in for day two when we were X2 and 1, we went to time against our opponents. And, you know, the turns played out, and we had already kind of determined that whoever we thought was ahead, you know, we we're just going to scoop if, mm-hmm. if our opponents are ahead. Because a draw knocks us both out of the tournament, and then the win should put the other person into day two. And our opponents were just ahead at, at time, so we we ended up scooping them and, and uh, allowing them to play day two. Which I think is just like a very clear, easy decision to make. So, Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Like, it doesn't yeah. do anybody any good to have two teams knocked out. Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Todd and I split a lot of matches uh, over the course of the weekend. We, we couldn't really <laughs> find a ways to... To both win at the same time. And that's just how it goes sometimes, I guess. Sure. But then, yeah, Todd and I both played Standard in the Classic. We both made Top 16, which was pretty nice. Todd ran back his Grixis deck. I I ran back the Mono Green list that I played in Standard in the team event. But I updated it a little bit into something more similar to what Steven Dykeman had been uh, testing with mono green, he had the some pretty sweet tech there. Where I initially played the the thorn lieutenants. Mm-hmm. That's the new two three that when you target when your opponent targets it, you can get a one one. But kind of like my experience at the tournament, and even my experience testing was that that card was just kind of pretty medium. And I ended up cutting it for the classic uh, on Dykeman's recommendation for just servant of the conduits, just like a little extra mana dork. And then the 2-2 body is just fine. You know, sometimes it attacks. It's pretty good. Uh, and that turned out to be a huge improvement, I think, for the deck. Is yeah. that, you know, post-board a lot of the time, the, the extra mana dork was really, really helpful because a lot of the post-board games play out in such a way where the the Planeswalkers can be really important, and being able to turbo those out was, was pretty clutch sometimes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. They're actually sometimes kind of hard to cast out of the regular mono-green list. Like, just that... Yeah. Usually you have to, like, you don't cast them, like, on turn five. Like, you need to draw a couple more cards before you have the mana to really do it properly. Right. Which 
which in the case of planeswalkers which puts you up a card every turn like that's that's not actually the best in the world yeah yeah for sure so we'll definitely talk about that uh we're gonna jump into standard right after doing our keeper mull and, and definitely a lot of that is going to be talking yeah we can about... we can definitely get more into that in a minute, yeah for sure yeah and I, I think that our our discussion about mono green and options with that deck is gonna be a pretty strong focus of the standard section of today's <laughs> podcast yeah yeah but so for our keeper mall i stole this from an owen turtenwald article from a couple of weeks back he's been kind of writing a series of articles very focused on red black uh you know like pretty much his his specific 75 that he ran at the pt and then ran at nationals and has been doing well with and people are mostly copying to within a card or two um and one of his articles was specifically focused on mulliganing decisions with the deck and one of the hands that i thought was particularly interesting was this one so he is on the draw against a deck that he uh, against a player that he said he's 95 percent sure that they're playing white black knights and so this hand on the draw game one is four mountains and a braid an unlicensed disintegration and a glory bringer uh, and I don't want to spoil it by saying like what his analysis was, even though I'll mention that after we talk about it. <laughs> but sure. I, I thought this hand was particularly interesting because, you know, Red Black is an aggressive deck, but the build of it that that most people are playing has a high number of four drops and a couple of glory bringers and a decent, you know, nine-ish removal spells. And so sometimes you just get hands like this that are very reactive and not you know, don't have a set plan for like, here's what I'm doing. I'm playing a scrap heap scrounger and then I'm supporting it with these cards. You know, this hand really is asking your opponent to kind of walk into it a little bit. And those kinds of hands are a little tougher to determine whether they're actually going to be good or not. So I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about a hand like this um, in game one on the draw. Yeah, so game one, 95% for me is a high enough percentage to... Just assume that that is the case, right? So I, I would say that's just kind of the same as knowing knowing yeah. what we're playing against for game one. So the, then once we know what we're playing against, we kind of have to reassess our hand from that perspective. And so something that's going to be a little more difficult for me on the fly right now is knowing whether or not the cards here are good enough uh, and like particularly powerful in this matchup, right? Um, I do know the, the both lists pretty well. So I, I, I can kind of figure that the removal spells are going to be really important from the from the red player's perspective. Because there are a lot of threats that the, the knights player can present that are going to be really, really difficult. Like they're going to have Lyra's in their deck, so this unlicensed disintegration is going to be really clutch. The Abrade is just going to need to get the first striking guys out of the way to both get pressure off of you and be able to you know attack it all on the ground. And then the Glorybringer, I think, is probably just like one of the better threats that the red deck has against uh, this Knight's deck because the Exert is pretty much always going to be really relevant, and uh, flying is probably just really key here. Um, so if that assessment is correct and that the removal spells are really important and this Glorybringer is like our, one of our best threats here, then I think that I would keep this hand. Yeah, and and this is just one that you know, like I said, it's it's so hard for me. Like, I, I always kind of want to keep these reactive hands because they've got lands and spells and one very powerful spell in Glorybringer that, like, 
makes up for not being super assertive in the early game. And I always feel like like I'm keeping because I don't want to mulligan with these sorts of hands. Because at this point, like there, if you are not getting off on a relatively aggressive foot, then there's just so many cards in your deck that aren't very good. Like Hazaret is a pretty bad draw in this in with this hand, and like a scrap peeps grounder after turn two is going to be really bad in this hand because you're not applying you know when you're applying pressure and then you get to like add the scrap heap to the board along with like a removal spell around turn four or something like that then it 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 becomes like a real thing if they're still at 20 playing a late scrap heap scrounger is much much less exciting so mm-hmm. uh you know like a hand like this really limits the application of a lot of the cards in your deck and that's why i often just feel really bad about keeping hands like this even if i do know that my opponent like is a creature deck that like these cards are pretty good against and um i don't know like one nice thing about it is that having the glory bringer in the hand makes the four lands that you have in the hand like not hurt so much because they are they are doing a thing for you but you know, I, I mean, I guess, like, this isn't a hand I would feel good about, but it might be a hand that I have to keep. But maybe you, you play, like, a bunch of games with this hand and you realize that it's just, like, so many of the cards in your deck are just not very good after this start that you may, maybe just can't really afford to keep a hand like this is kind of my feeling on it. Right, yeah. I And I think that, you know, it kind of comes down to you know, your knowledge of the matchup, right? If you know that a hand like this, or, or these cards in particular, the Abrade, the Unlicensed Disintegration, and the Glorybringer, if you know that those cards are, are just, like, really powered in this matchup and really kind of what you're looking for, then, you know, in that case, you know, I, I can see the hand. But I, I don't know this matchup, you know, very well personally right now, so mm-hmm. I, I my initial assumption is that these are really good cards in the matchup, so sure. I think that I would, you know, if I had to decide right now, I would probably keep it because that's my assessment. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that the, you know, the important thought process is, okay, you know, are these are these spells good enough as a matchup? I know how the game's probably going to play out with this hand. You know, he's going to play a thump, something, I'm going to kill it. He's going to play another thing, I'm going to kill it. And then I'm going to glory bringer, hopefully kill something else. And hopefully at that point, I'm like, you know, in a good spot and have drawn a decent number of spells. Right. Um Hopefully more Chandra's than other things. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you know that the only way that you can win in this matchup is by getting boots on the ground and then, you know, using your removal spells to clear the way and then you kind of like, you know, close out the game by by attacking them, then you can't keep this hand and you'd have to mulligan because you don't have the pressure. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, this is a really tough hand. Like what Owen ends up saying is that he kept this hand in the tournament but mm-hmm. felt not great about it. And then when he asked yeah. his teammates, almost all of his teammates said they, they would keep it, except Huey said that he would mulligan, and then that, like, combined with his own gut feeling, makes him think that this is probably a mulligan. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> because, Fair enough. you know, if, if Owen and Huey are both kind of on the same page, then that is a pretty decent evidence for that particular decision. But that that all goes to say that, like, this is a super close decision like even people who have played this matchup a lot and have tested with this deck and are very good at magic like can't come to an agreement on it probably in a tournament setting i would just 
keep it because I mean part of it is also that like red black doesn't mulligan super well with all of those fours and fives in it the only thing it's got going for it is like yeah Bomat Courier and Hazret are better when you have fewer cards but like Bomat Courier is so bad in this matchup and a lot of times when you mulligan you just like get stuck on three lands and can't cast your good spells and this hand it doesn't have that problem so yeah really tough call here definitely yeah, tempted sure. to keep very close but, hand very yep. close yep so hard decisions for sure and I, I just wanted to get a little bit away i feel like a lot of my hands that i struggle with in my testing are the like greedy like low on mana kind of hands or something like that and this one was different enough that i thought it was really interesting yeah there's a concept in magic that i remember hearing about a long time ago that had a big impact on me which was it's good to know which way you tend to lean in in terms of uh, I think the 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 scenario when I first heard this was if you know that you have a tendency to attack too much, then when you're looking at a case that's really close and you feel like and you know about yourself that you tend to attack too much, that probably means that this is a scenario where you should not attack and, and hold back on defense. Yep. Um, Makes or sense. on you know on the on the reverse side, if you feel like you don't attack enough, and you come across a, cl- a scenario that feels very close, then you should probably attack right because your tendencies are going to skew what you believe to be the, the right play. You know what I mean? Yep. And this might be a similar scenario where if you think that you mulligan too aggressively, or if you feel like you don't mulligan enough. It could be helpful to, when uh, coming across a really close hand, kind of do the opposite of, of what your tendencies are, right? Because your tendencies are going to pull that into something. They Like, a, a hand might be a keep, you know, mathematically or whatever. But if, you f- if you're feeling like it's a mulligan, but it's, like, really close, but you also know about yourself that you mulligan too much, maybe, then you should probably, you know it's going to be more accurate that your your tendencies are skewing you in the other direction. Sure. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, once you identify a weakness in your decision-making, if you mm-hmm. kind of correct the other way, um, you know, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be making the right decision, but it, it'll at yeah. least help you see but scenarios that, that yeah. you might not have seen otherwise. For sure, yeah. And when you're playing tournament magic, you don't have forever to you know to talk to talk to people <laughs> or uh, you know like really try to rationalize it out. You kind of you have to make decisions in the tournament setting. You can't tank forever, you know. As, as much as I would like to be able to, you can't tank forever. So you kind of <laughs> right. have to you know use some of those shortcuts to figure out you know what's better. Yeah, we we talk about these hands for like ten or fifteen minutes, but that is not the environment right. that you get when you're making that decision. Yeah, yeah. Cool, so standard. Bunch of interesting stuff here. I mean, number one, you know, we talked about Mono Green a lot last week, but I think that is still uh, a big topic of discussion. Really, the the two big things that I think are important to talk about in standard right now is playing and building Mono Green, because I think it is very, very real, and it is going to have a place in the format you know, for the next couple of months until rotation just, you know, messes everything up forever. And so talking about it and, and and actually understanding how the deck works and why different choices are made is really important. And also, 
what's really weird is, you know, I spent a bunch of time over the last day or two kind of reading everybody's articles about Standard and seeing what sort of a, you know, consensus about the current format is. And one of the things that's popped up is I don't think there's really a consensus about how good red decks are right now. It's really interesting, like, uh, Jadine has an article called, uh, yeah, her article is the red decks are starting to suck, here's how to fix them. But, you know, just a few below that, and now this was before this past weekend in Philadelphia, but Owen's article after Worcester is basically just, you know, red-black is still the best deck, It's, it's still incredibly powerful, and you're probably making a mistake if you're not playing Goblin Chain Whirler. And I don't think that's, you know, an unpopular... Uh, analysis of the format either so i think it's it'll be good to talk about like how good red in general is right now and like what what it's doing in the format so jadine's article was i think really well done and, and it did a good thing which is break up the the mono red decks into like the sort of standard builds although i think uh she kind of missed you know she divided them up into three and i think there are actually like four so there's the, like, any deck with Wizard's Lightning in it, super low to the ground, very aggressive, like, 22 lands. And, and so those are all mono-red. And then there are, like, 24 land mono-red decks with something like six or maybe seven of the four mana spells. And, like, 24 mountains. And then we get into the red decks that are, like, splashing black just for Scrap Heap Scrounger. And they have like five black sources in them, but the fact that it has, you know, like the Dragon Skull Summits don't really slow it down, so it's not that different from those 24 mountain decks, but sometimes it could stumble a little bit, but it just gets a a significant upgrade in the two-drop department by running Scrap Heap Scrounger. And then there are the black-red decks, which run anywhere from like seven to even nine of the bigger drops, often a couple of Glorybringers main deck, and they're really like closer to mid-range decks than than pure aggro decks, even though they do have like like four Bomat Couriers in them, but they're usually down to like two uh, Soulscar Mages, where the red decks usually... Uh, have the full play set of those in in place of some more expensive spells. So, you know, the the fact that we're talking about really like four different decks, though they have a lot of overlap when when we talk about the red decks, makes it that much harder to determine their current place in the metagame and current like quality of choice you know whether you should be playing this deck or one of these decks it's 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 hard to just say that when there's so many different ways you can build the deck but i mean there's you know some some current truths to the format which is like most of these decks you know they're running damage based removal that is not so good against steel leaf champion and thrashing brontodon and so does that mean that they're not so good when mono green is all over the place or you know some people have said like actually black red kind of preys on the mono green decks because of Chandra and Glorybringer and so that's it, it's tough it's tough to see like what these matchups really are and and you've played a bunch with the mono green deck now yeah what do you think about playing red right now is it that rough with all the mono green decks and and the Grixis decks with Bolas or is it still a fine choice so right i think that the the lower to the ground mono red decks are definitely in a worse position now mm-hmm. because any deck that doesn't have an answer to like a steel leaf champion or like the big creatures that the green can put out is going to struggle a lot 
And I think that like just the the rest of the mid range decks are tuned enough to where the general burn plan from these like really low to the ground wizards lightning decks are it's just not gonna quite get there right now. People are too prepared and the matchup against green I think is just too bad to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. to do that profitably. But if you start putting more unlicensed disintegrations in your deck or more cut to ribbons in your deck then all of a sudden your matchup against green gets almost favorable you know i think that almost just like as simple as depending on how many unlicensed disintegrations you have in your deck like that just like significantly correlates to your matchup against green (laughs) because you know if i can if i can get a galta down against a red deck the game ends right it's over they're dead Yep. Uh, but you know, against against the black variants, they can they can kill it with. They have a removal spell for it, which just makes a huge huge difference in terms of like our ability to race each other. You know. Yep. And everything except for Galta and Ronus is very vulnerable to Chandra and Glorybringer. So if you have a build that's right, focused right. on those, and it's also very yeah. hard to attack through Phoenix. So mm-hmm. it, yeah. So if your deck has like a lot of Phoenixes and Glorybringers and Chandras. And unlicensed disintegrations, then I think that your matchup against green is actually just fine, like mm-hmm. good even maybe. So right, so I think that you know the better red decks right now are the kind of like the more mid rangey, bigger m- mythic based decks. Um, but I really think it's a, a pretty bad spot to be as a really low to the ground wizards lightning red deck, unfortunately. Yeah, and that makes sense. Um, one thing that I have definitely seen though is that just like by being on the the Grixis side is that a lot of times the and, and other people's opinions definitely differ from mine on this from what I've read um, but I've definitely found that like playing a Nicole Bolas style deck I am often more scared of what the Wizards Lightning decks can do to me mostly because it's easy to turn the game into like a top decking situation and I have more answers to the things that the black red deck can draw than to the things that the Wizards Lightning decks can draw, especially if I'm at like five life, which is often the case. So a lot of times like it feels more precarious, but I don't know if it actually plays out in such a way that I lose more of those games. It's just I'm kind of like holding my breath for longer as I swing in for the last couple of points of damage. So I'm not totally sure you know, for, I, I felt like you were giving up percentage points by being a more mid-rangey deck uh, against the Grixis decks because you're kind of like playing their game and playing into their Vraska's Contempts more. But I'm not sure that it actually ends up playing out that well. Like you give yourself more of an opportunity to get lucky towards the end of the game, but you need to get pretty lucky to actually do those last couple of points of damage if you didn't just have an overwhelming start. Yeah. So it it might just sort of like you know, I'll break even in the end in that matchup. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. The matchups for those like mid rangey decks, I think that you 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 can get equity in the metagame with the lower the ground decks if you're expecting to play against a lot more like Grixis and control and stuff like that. Like there's you know, there's definitely matchups that are gonna be better because you are lower the ground. Um yeah. but I think that, you know, you're not you're not so much better uh in those matchups really to make up for the fact that you you the the small red decks almost just can't beat green yeah I, I think the difference maker is like from being on the green side like if they start out with 
a Soulscar Mage, then we've got a game. And it, it's such that, like, if they start out with Soulscar Mage, I feel like I'm slightly disfavored in the matchup, unless I have a great hand. If they don't start out with Soulscar Mage, then most of their cards don't do anything. So that that's not a good spot for them to be in. Right, right, for sure. Also, um, don't don't play Earthshaker Kenra right now. That card is <laughs> is terrible. Yeah, yeah, for for a couple of reasons, but yeah. I, I definitely agree. I mean, Thorn Lieutenant is a big one of them. Uh, Goblin Chain Whirler obviously is one of them, and yeah, it's just not not the two drop for you. Yeah, I think right. That pretty much covers my thoughts on red. There have been there have definitely been some interesting uh, Grixis builds, and it feels like the you know there are a few Grixis builds where a lot of people are kind of like championing that, and um, you know they're definitely proving their spot in the meta game. These these like blue black bolus decks are are uh, showing up in a, in a pretty big way, I think recently. Yeah, they're a substantial portion of the meta game. They don't they still haven't like settled down. There's no best build yet, I don't think. Like if we look at the open results, you know, like Ben Reagan's is a pretty classic uh blue black focused, uh really just splashing red for four Nicole Bolas for three red removal spells. But also in the top 8 we have Jordan Berkowitz, who has two abrades and four harness lightnings in the deck. And then we've also got uh, Joe Jankook, who goes all the way to like class- classic Grixis, like chaos mana base with like, <laughs> yeah, magma yeah. spray into essence scatter and cast down and abrade and arguals bloodfast, like just sort of trusting that the mana is going to work out okay, which I don't think is like an insane thing to do. The mana's not terrible. Like, things can work out like one really remarkable thing here is that there are no ether hubs in this mana base because he's decided to go with not being a glint sleeve siphoner deck which uh, i don't know if that can possibly be right so i'll just kind of leave it at that but (laughs) um, sure yeah I i feel that like glint sleeve siphoner i guess i won't just leave it at that but glint sleeve siphoner is still a bonkers card in any matchup where they don't just have Chain Whirler for it, it's just so obnoxious to deal with. So Yeah, yeah. You know. I mean, there are a lot of matchups where it's bad, and you board it out, and mm-hmm. and then your mana base is a little worse because you have to run Aether Hubs, and those can be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just like the Mirror and, like, against Control decks, that, you know, Glintless Sleeve Siphoner is just a house, and I, it would be sad not to have it. Yeah. it's To me, it's a draw to the deck is having this powerful play on turn two that, you know, kind of, like, makes the game warp around. It becomes the important thing as long as it is on the battlefield. And giving it up, I think, removes a really valuable dimension from the deck. Yeah, I I feel that for sure. But, you know, one deck without it, and this is a team event, so, so don't take it too much, you know, use a grain of salt, but... One of the lists of of Grixis that made the top eight did not run any at all. And while I don't know if that is correct or not, best choice or whatever, uh, it definitely goes to show like there is no settled best list for a Nicole Bolas deck yet. There are so many choices. Like the only thing we know is like at least three Nicole Boluses, a couple of Scarab Gods, four Vraska's Contempts. And then the rest of the deck is like your favorite removal spells and (laughs) card advantage engines and and go so and we've seen some evolution in those removal spells like i think we're seeing more essence scatters 
because you need to solve Vine Mare. We're seeing some some more main deck Torrential Gearhulks, which I think are a really solid choice right now. Although that you know may necessitate like running an extra land in the deck, but Gearhulk is just mm. you're running four Vraska's Contempts anyways, so it's and a also fine card. good against Vine Mare. Yeah, worth it, noting. Yeah, exactly. Like even if they have the Blossoming Defense, it still kills the Vine Mare. So yeah. they have to have like the Thrashing Bronson on, which people are cutting down on right now. So and and also just isn't that great against your deck. I found a lot of spots playing green where I just felt forced to like activate a hash up oasis on my vine mirror before I could attack in with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, making me play in a way that I don't really want to, which is really powerful. So, right. Right. Definitely. And one pretty cool thing was we saw a constrictor list make the top eight of the open too and this deck was definitely taking advantage of vine mare not as much as the one the mono green lists that have vine mare in the main deck but by being able to cast a verderous gear hulk the turn after you cast your vine mare you really make like none of the answers to vine mare work anymore yeah that's some pressure for sure yeah yeah i was honestly i was pretty impressed by constrictor in a field full of monogreen because constrictor just gets bigger than what monogreen is trying to do oh yeah um you know if you have a winding constrictor on the board and you can throw some plus one plus one counters around and you know if you like especially if you play a verter skier hulk after all that then your board generally gets bigger faster than what monogreen is trying to do which i think makes your matchup against monogreen really favorable because you also have things like chupacabra and other and other stuff to you know really put the hurt on their what they're kind of like banking on as like big threats or whatever so so there's you know that could definitely be a consideration moving forward if if monogreen continues to be everywhere uh i think i could easily see snake coming back a little bit yeah i i think that's absolutely right honestly i think that green black is one of monogreen's worst matchups yeah Um, yeah and especially if we're getting to a place where like running main deck vine mares and, and i think that i think we are getting to this place and i think it is a good decision to run main deck vine mares but boy snake it does not mind you spending turn four or or turn three with elena or elves just playing a five three hex proof like their guys are already bigger than that so um yeah yeah so yeah uh and and you can definitely make your like one of the reasons to play snake in the past has been that it's very good against the blue black mid-range decks and you know that's that's changed over time as decks have evolved i think nicole bolus makes that math a lot more complicated and the fact that you're not running blossoming defense in these snake decks anymore because they're not really that kind of deck as much um definitely changes the calculus there but the fact that you can just run vine mare in this deck and it's quite good in this deck i think probably makes those matchups fine yeah yeah for sure yeah, I mean, the card Vinemare is just having such a big impact, and I think that any green deck, you know, is definitely going to be running them, and that's going to help out their green's traditional bad matchup, which is these control decks, which is really powerful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most effective against the targeted removal-based control decks, less effective against the white-based ones, but boy, the blue-white decks have just disappeared. It feels um, like it, for sure. There's, I mean, they had, like, a, a decent showing last weekend, but this time... Right. If, if we're talking much. about the up-to-the-minute metagame, there are none in the top 16 of the Open. In the Classic, there are 
there's one in the top 16, none in the top eight. I, I think that they're just... I haven't seen them online very much, although they're less fun to play online because winning with Teferi <laughs> is just miserable uh, yeah, yeah. online. But yeah, definitely haven't seen them online very much. So I think it is getting... Although, you know, if, if Mono Green becomes very popular, then certainly Blue-White becomes more attractive to play. But right now, at this minute... Just it's just not there. You're not playing against that many Teferis. You're not playing against any Settle the Wreckage. Right, right, for sure. And I think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, the card that we were just talking about, Vinemare. It's just really pushing pushing those, like, making it pretty difficult for the, for these, you know, control decks to, you know, have consistent success against uh, green. Because, like, if they don't find one of their sweepers, then they can just die very, very quickly to a Vinemare that resolves. So you, so you think these green decks are really punishing the blue-white decks, too? I, I think specifically Vinemare is. Okay. It, like, you know, blue-white's matchup against them is might be down to, like, even almost, I would say. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, um, Nasif was talking about the reason that he chose to play Mono Blue Storm at Nationals, uh, at his French Nationals, even though he is very consistently a control player and has played so much blue-white control in the standard format was because he didn't love the blue-white control matchup against mono green. He was losing to it a yeah. lot. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the it, it's kind of similar to that having the the Knight of Malices and and like Heart of Kirins that make blue-white's like targeted removal just not work very well. Like if you can make them wrath two of your creatures and then you follow up with a vine mare and they usually their answer is to cast out your your follow-up threat but they definitely can't cast out a Vine Mare. Right, right. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's it just does a really good job. Any card against control that restricts the number of answers that they have against it is is going to be really powerful, right? Yeah. So you can play around Settle the Wreckage. You don't, you know, if you're attacking with a lot of creatures, you can pull, or if you want to, you can attack with everything but your Vine Mare, right? So that, you know, one of their only answers just can't hit it at that point. There's just a lot of play that the green players have access to, to... To play through and make things really awkward and difficult mm-hmm. um, for the control player, and any time that that's true, I think that you know the control player is gonna have a rough time. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why like like Scrappy Scrounger is good even against Blue White. Like you look at it and you think like, well, isn't this just gonna get seal away or settle the wreckage or something? And yeah, like that happens a reasonable amount of the time, but a, a similar percentage of the time they're forced into essence scattering it, or it gets caught in the fumigate. And you just, you know, you don't get it back yeah. every single time it's removed, but you get it back enough that it's a really good two mana threat. So just right, right. And then post board, you know, you get access to so many planeswalkers, mm-hmm. and you still have all of your thrashing bronodons that are just like a threat that you can have in play while they've like they have just like a cast out sitting down. So you know, if, as soon as they want to answer it, then you can sack it to get your other threat back, and then you know maybe that thing that they had had cast out on was like a big planeswalker that you now have back or whatever there's just a lot of angles to that matchup that um that favors the green side yeah yep um i mean and i think another big reason that blue white control is disappearing is that it's like not easy to play against the bolus decks with blue white control 
even though game yeah, yeah, one yeah. like they do have some stranded cards like sometimes they just like play a bolus and it's a two for one and you don't really have a good answer to it and it's hard to find an opening to play a teferi and then you just find yourself behind maybe they drew one of their main deck argyle's blood fasts and then the games two and three are just complete nightmares with like four yeah. duresses and multiple negates coming in uh right right that it's just awful so pretty bad pretty bad so yeah not so I mean, all of this is to say, like, maybe go ahead and, and play Constrictor. Like, Jeff Cunningham top eights every single online PTQ with it. So, you know, if if, if we're going to be fighting Vine Mares, like, maybe play the, the bigger Vine Mare deck. Yeah, right. And that, yeah, and that Vine Mare, bigger Vine Mare deck might just be black-green. Yep. Um, Like, Constrictor and stuff, so. Yep. Uh, But, so you chose to play kind of a, a an interesting mono green build so <laughs> yeah four main deck vine mares uh and, and and you took this to top 16 of the classic so four main deck vine mares cut the thorn lieutenants four servants of the conduit uh went down to like two thrashing rotadons and two green belt rampagers to make room for some of this stuff so what and and stayed at three hearts of kieran which is a pretty high number of hearts of kieran so what's the <laughs> what's the you know reasoning behind these choices yeah, so I really liked having access to more mana dorks, and I really didn't like the Thorn Lieutenants. I thought, like, after I played them um, in the team open, I felt like that card was just really bad right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to cut them for the Servant of Conduits, which uh, worked out really well for me. And um, talking to Dykeman, he convinced me that, uh, you know, when, I, when he told me that he just wanted to run the Vine Bears in the main deck, I was initially pretty hesitant because, you know, I was like, yeah, but there's so many matchups where they're just not good in. But some of the matchups where they're not good in, they're still fine, you know. Yep. Um, they're a guy. He pointed out, like, what's, sorry? Like, they're a guy. They're a big guy yeah. that it makes some of their cards awkward. Like, how bad can it be in almost yeah. any matchup? How bad can that be? And and they even had, like, other utility that I didn't think about at first, right? Where, like, against, against red, it's just another like, body that can get you closer to Galta um, that they just, like, can't interact with, right? It's mm-hmm. five, that's five power that they're not getting off the board unless you choose to put it in combat, you know? So, you know, and that, you know, getting down your Galta against that deck is just game over, right? So it's it actually does work out pretty well where you, you know, it, it, it can help with your plans. Um, even though, like, the 5-3 body might not be ideal or, you know, the Hexproof isn't as relevant or whatever. You know, it's still it's still a really solid card, right? So I'd I'd rather like increase my win percentage against these control decks, which are the you know kind of the tougher matchups and everything, by having this card and Grixis in particular. You know, I'd rather increase my percent win percentage against these Grixis decks by having this Vine Mare in there in my main deck, and you know I'm not actually losing that much percentages right. against the rest of the field. Yeah, it it's feels kind of the conclusion that we came to. It feels a lot like because it's such a a haymaker of a hate card like when you play it against a blue black deck it feels as powerful as playing rest in peace against dredge like it's just going to yeah, contort yeah, their entire game and to be able to just have a medium decent creature that's never terrible and sometimes is like the best card you could possibly have in like you know these grixis decks are like 25 ish percent of the meta game maybe 30 percent. oh yeah huge so you know, if if thirty percent of modern was 
you know, dredge, and you could just, like, run a 2-mana 2-2 that has the rest in peace ability in (laughs) humans or something? Wouldn't you do that? So Right, yeah. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of running those Vine Mares here. And, and like, the... So, I I think that the Servants make more sense once you are running the Vine Mares. um, Just because being that much more likely to put it into play a turn earlier when it's difficult for them to hold up their Essence Scatter and, and whatever... That makes the servants make a lot more sense. Like I haven't been as unhappy with Thorn, Le- Thorn Lieutenant as you have. Um, I definitely like it's not the most powerful card ever. But if you want a two drop that attacks and blocks, like I think it's a significant upgrade over the Kenra or over Merfolk Branchwalker. But it's not like incredible. Like the only times it's been like, oh hell yeah, this card is when I've gotten kind of flooded and started pumping it, and it's been a real threat. But, you know, early game, a lot of times, like, it makes reds attacking kind of awkward, especially if there's, like, still on an Earthshaker Kenra list, then that can give them a lot of trouble. But, yeah, it's it's rarely incredible. And so if you choose to just kind of say, no, not going to bother attacking with these two drops, then, then I think Servant is a great choice. And especially if it heightens the odds of a turn three Vine Mare, then that starts making a lot more sense. Yeah, and the turn three Vine Mare can be really clutch and pretty backbreaking a lot of the time, as well as just, you know, postboard having access to the Planeswalkers um, earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be, like, a big difference against, like, control decks and stuff, so that they don't have, like, time to kind of, like, you know, draw into their answers or, or whatever. So I, I definitely am I'm a big proponent of Servant right now over, over Thorn Lieutenant. Yep. One thing that I would like to, and we, we've spent a, a, a fair bit of time talking about modern so far, but I would like to talk about sideboarding with mono green just for a little bit, since we both played the sure. deck, and I still kind of struggle when when sideboarding. So I, I, I guess we'll break it into like sideboarding for Vraska's contempt decks, uh, sideboarding for red decks, and then and then red black. Um, those are like the two places that I think kind of can give the most trouble in just determining like what is actually bad and what is reasonable to keep in. Um, so when playing against yeah. like the Vraska's Contempt decks, like for me, the first thing that comes out are the Galtas. And then uh, a lot of times I'm not as into having Heart of Kirin in if I've seen either Fatal Push or Braid, but it's some number of like Heart of Kirins or Ronuses that I tend to take out. And then what to take out is always like the harder decision because you've got all this fun stuff you want to bring in. Um, but so <laughs> yeah. what what is your approach to those those Grixis matchups? So yeah, against Grixis, for the list that I ended up running in the in the classic, I liked the uh, the Hour of Glories. I think that they were important against mm-hmm. uh, like you know the just kind of like the big threats that you kind of need to get through. Um, I really liked the Planeswalkers as a good angle on, you know, also fighting through that way. So, you know, that's a few cards, but it's not it's not like a ton of cards that we need to find space for. Because um, right. you've already got the, the Vine Mares in the main deck, which makes it a little bit easier. And also makes right, this discussion right. slightly less important, because you might just be mising them. But, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm down to talk about the other version as well, but... You know, the, the Thrashing Bronodons, I felt like, were really not very important. There's not a lot of targets that, that you can hit. And then I definitely don't mind trimming on um, Galtas and Ronas in this mm-hmm. in this matchup. 
Ronus in particular because you know it gets Frasca's contempted just like any other threat, so its indestructibility isn't like a huge deal. And also, they're going to be doing a lot to try to use their spot removal to make sure that you don't have a lot of other guys in on play, which mm-hmm. make both Ronus and Galta not as great. So I like trimming on those guys um, yeah. when finding space for the other stuff. Because then you know your heavy hitters become the planeswalkers instead of these like you know big fatty creatures, right? Yeah, and I guess the fact that you're bringing in those planeswalkers make the Hearts of Kirin more viable. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like Heart of Kirin. I I don't think that I ever boarded out Heart of Kirin. Really? <laughs> okay. Um, which See, might... I I have always boarded them out against red black and maybe i'm making a mistake there um but i could see an argument for it if they get a slightly aggressive start like especially on the draw like every time i've had to cast heart of kieran has felt so bad um because like if you're forced to crew on defense and then they have an abrade like you're it's just a nightmare and yeah. uh so so that's that's mostly been my logic there um and, and so, um, like, I've never kept any in on the draw against, uh, I think, any of the red decks. Um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of part of my strategy against these red decks was just to purely race, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think that Heart does a good job of that. Um, but in the matchups where you are taking out your Scrap Heap Scroungers and not bringing in any of your Planeswalkers, I think that it's a very, very good argument for to bring out Heart of Kirin as well. Because if you're if you're taking out your Scrap Heap Scrounger, which is like your, you know, your best way of crewing Heart of Kirin, a lot of the time, uh, you know, and you're not bringing in the Planeswalkers, which are also going to help, then Heart's definitely going to be stuck in your hand or um, just kind of chilling out there. But I think that Heart is just such a powerful card in so many matchups the flying can be really relevant the fact that it's a vehicle can be really relevant like against control decks and everything that i i never really went to it as one of the cards that i wanted to board out and maybe maybe that's bad of me to not uh not you know think about as much but that was my experience from the weekend okay so what would you usually be taking out against um I mean, mono red and red black maybe you treat differently but against red decks uh and if you have different different plans for different versions of the decks. I'm definitely interested in hearing that. Yeah, so, you know, you want as many X4s as you can. Yes. Um, as you can as you can muster. So, you want you want to bring in your your extra Rampager if you have one. You want to bring in your Bronadons. Against pure red, I like bringing in my extra Galta in the board. Mhm. Against red black, kind of not as much because they're just kind of better at answering that card. But I, I think that I still brought it in. I don't really mess around with any of the planeswalkers in these matchups, so I think that it kind of like looking at it on paper now. I do like bringing out the hearts here because I have been cutting scrap heap scrounger mm-hmm. in this matchup. I just want my threats to be pretty versatile. Sometimes you're on the defensive and you need to block, especially if you're on the draw. You usually block for two turns before you start really turning right. it around. So I like boarding out the Scrap Heap Scroungers, and I also like boarding out the Vine Mares in this matchup. And and the Ronus as well can be can be awkward at times, so you can trim on some number of Ronus. I think, I think where I ended up with Ronus was that I hated them on the draw, but I really liked them on the play. And I think there might be an argument for boarding completely differently on the play versus on the draw, especially... Versus the very mid-rangey versions of red-black. 
And, like, on the play, like, I almost want to go, like, scrap heap scrounger into big guy, like, because that can be really hard for them to deal with. Uh, now, if you've seen Magnus Bray or something, then just take out your scrap heap scrounger so they don't have good targets for it. But, like, so a lot of times, uh, especially against the mid-range versions of the red-black decks, when you're on the play post board, like, you just get a chance to, to beat down and just lay waste. So I, like, sometimes yeah. have just, like, played yeah, Aronis sure. and had them concede to it, so... Yeah, I mean, that can happen, for sure. Sometimes Ronus, you know, and especially Ronus paired with a Vinemare can be can be really, really good in right. all matchups. But I, I just also found that there are a lot of spots where those cards were a little too awkward, where having too many of those copies of those cards was a, a detriment. Yeah. So, something to trim on, but maybe not something to entirely cut. Sure, makes sense. Um, and it also, it, I think this... This part of the conversation in particular really depends on whether you're playing it's mono red or red black. I, I think you want like the higher level of consistency in the very good matchup of mono red, where like if they don't start out with a Soulscar Mage, you don't really care what they're doing. So you just want to make yeah. sure you have cards that work whether you're blocking or attacking. Um, and against red black, like I think there's room to to play around, and I think. Like, that's one that I kind of want to sit down across from a buddy and just jam, like, 20 post-board games and experiment with different sideboarding strategies, because I think it might be right to have, like, a substantially different plan on the play or on the draw post-sideboard there. But maybe that's trying too hard. I mean, I, I think that that is an underrated aspect of, of Magic, where your plans should be different play and draw. I think that the most important time... To pick up your sideboard and take a look at it is between games two and three, because so much changes between those two games. Maybe you learned something new about your opponent's deck. You saw their, you should have seen their sideboard plan and what it looks like. Um, the play draws likely changed. So yeah, definitely. You know, I think that I think that it is very important to reassess everything and say, you know, maybe these scrap heap scroungers aren't going to be so bad on the play, and I should uh, I should keep them in and try to put the pressure on my opponent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. How did you like Nature's Way in the sideboard? Did it? It uh, it, was, it was pretty good for me. Uh, I had it played against me in the in the in the in the main event in the team open, and it was really really powerful in the mirror specifically. Yes. Like if you have a Ronus, then it's just you know kill your opponent's creature, no questions asked. Even yeah, even um, a Galton and giving your Ronus. You know, vigilance and trample on your death touch indestructible Ronus is like really, really powerful, right? Because then it can attack, tramples over for four damage, kind of like at the minimum, and you know, and then it's still there to block, which I think can be really, really powerful. So I liked it for the mirror, and I figured that there are going to be a lot of mirrors, because mono green is really popular. So I, I, I really like the card there. Um, it's like fine in other matchups. I bring it in against red to be able to kill Soulscar Mage, which is like you know just the biggest threat yep. really to what you're trying to do, because uh, Soulscar Mage single-handedly just turns on all of their removal spells. So I, I liked it there as well. It was, I was pretty happy with it in my sideboard for sure. Yeah, yeah, I've I've really liked it too. Uh, I think that like the Jessup build, he originally had them in there as like a way to potentially not just lose to Death Baron out of zombies. That's less important now since people aren't actually playing zombies. But I also I, I agree. I've also just been happy with it against red. Like a lot of times, having a steel leaf champion out, killing whatever guy they have that's bothering you, attacking with vigilance on your steel leaf champion, so then they still can't attack you 
with anything that yeah. turn. It, the it vigilance just... is really crucial on this card. It's yeah. it, it's so surprising how that often is just the biggest keyword for um, for the matchups that you want this card in. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, it just feels like a total like time walk effect when you set it up perfectly. Um, right. So yeah, uh, I, I've I've been happy with um, it too. Yeah, it's 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 not unlikely that the answer should be to play more hour of glories. Something that I wanted to play three Hour of Glories in the in the classic, but that card just didn't exist in <laughs> in the event hall. Oh god! Uh, because because all of the green decks were playing it, and all of the the like light red splash red decks were playing it as well. So I even played I played round one of the team open just with one in my sideboard, even though I registered two. Um, <laughs> Because I just couldn't find another one until uh, until JJ went out to his car and, and found his other one that he had. Oh, God. Um, yeah, I've yeah. done that before. That was... Not fun. Yeah. That was an interesting judgment call I had to make, and it might be even worth talking about, where I knew that that card was really important, right? But come deck registration time, we were kind of scrambling to find cards at the last minute. Uh, just, you know, h- how that goes in the morning of these, these tournaments. And... I couldn't find another Hour of Glory. So it came down to whether or not I wanted to register two and only play with one until I could find the other one, or if I could, should just change my sideboard and, and play something else. And, I th- and you know, thinking about it, I think that I made just the way right decision because the assessment was that this card is just really, really important. And even if I had to play all of day one without an hour of glory in my sideboard you know if, if our plan is to win the tournament i'm gonna really really want it in my deck on day two sure so i think that that was just like worth registering it even though i didn't have it and then and then and then finding it later but that's like that's a pretty niche scenario that you know is not gonna happen very often but i thought it was like an interesting like you know dilemma of like all right what's the play we need to figure out you know what the best move is from here given these circumstances and i think i did a good job figuring out which one was um more equitable yep yep i mean i've i've had that happen to me as well and sometimes you just gotta bite the bullet and assume that you're going to find it at some point because yeah you know in later rounds that's just what you want to have there and and having a substitute is just gonna be yeah far far worse if it's a main deck card, then the story is different, right? Because you just, you know, you, can't, you, you are literally... allowed to play with fewer cards in your sideboard than you registered. Um, that's just purely a detriment to you. But if you're, you know, if you're playing your main deck without a card that you've registered, then it's a non-starter. You have to register what you're actually presenting, right? Right. Or um, you are cheating, so. Yeah, otherwise you were cheating, so that's bad. <laughs> you know, you, you just can't. But yeah, I thought that was like an interesting like little scenario that I ran into. Um yeah but cool so that's that's mono green definitely going to evolve some over time uh and and i i do think that the idea of maybe switching to snake uh as a way to like get a jump on this metagame although they're you know they're like mono green did well this weekend it won the classic it was very present it i mean it won the the open uh it was very present in all of the tournaments that were going on but it certainly wasn't like dominating the way that like red black has dominated in past weeks and stuff you know there's still lots of grixis and and that sort of thing but if you can get 
your constrictor deck to a point where you like feel great against mono green, which I think is the the default position, and where yeah. you are very confident in your like Grixis matchup, regardless of you know which of the seven different Grixis builds they're running. Um, then I think I, I think it can be a strong choice, you know, for maybe next week and then maybe not after that, but something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, that makes sense. So modern. We haven't talked about modern in a little bit, but that is uh, <laughs> next week. Are you going to SCG? Is it Indie? Is that what next week is? Yeah. Okay. SCG Indie is coming up this weekend. Current plan is to go. Um, still working out a ride and everything, but I, I should be. It should be there. Cool. Uh, what are you thinking of playing? Well, I, I'm thinking of playing a card that I'm sure we're going to be talking about in, in just a moment. I think most is, of my notes are about uh, this card. The bugler. The bugler. All right. Yeah. So. I, it's, so we might have missed a little bit on this one. We might have missed a little bit on this one when we were doing yeah, our initial and, evaluation. Kind of me personally, I was pretty adamant that I did not believe that this card was very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I even believe that I stated that on, on previous episodes of the podcast. But my teammates, who have been playing more humans than me lately, Gasp. were pretty high on it initially, and they've been testing it recently, and they're pretty happy with it. So I think that, you know, I, I think I, I'm probably just wrong about this card. It, it seems that its effect is just much more powerful than I anticipated. So tell me what it does for your matchups. What is the big draw of Militia Bugler? So the way it plays out is that there are often cards in your deck that, in particular matchups, are are really really high value cards. Mm-hmm. But in other matchups, they're like not as good, right? So you you're kind of hoping to draw the right half of your deck in particular matchups. Yeah, you're hoping to draw your disruptive elements against combo, and you're hoping to draw your uh, your Thali's lieutenants and like big cards against other matchups. Um, and then you're, you know, you're just trying to hope to that you, you know, you, you're drawing the right portion of your deck. And before Militia Bugler, we just had kind of zero control over that. The best card that we had that kind of controlled what we got to play was um, Phantasmal Image. Because it just allowed us to make sure that we're doubling down on the effects that are good right now, right? Um, Militia Bugler allows you to look at four cards and pick the card that is appropriate for the matchup or the scenario. And mm-hmm. that effect is extraordinarily powerful. And something that I I guess I just kind of missed on my initial evaluation of it. Um, I think initially I was just kind of thinking it in terms of like raw cards. But, you know, kind of breaking it down and saying, whoa, I get to, I get to pick which card I want right now. And it's gonna—it's very likely to be a card that's gonna be pretty impactful right now. That effect is really, really powerful, and I think really, really important for what humans is trying to accomplish in the, you know, in the metagame. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a couple of ways that that part of it plays out. I mean, like number one, yeah, you have the two halves of your deck. You have like the the disruptive half and then the muscle half, and this one lets you choose like which one. You're, you're going after at any given time. And then also, like, post-board, this is just awesome. Like, it gives you more static casters. It gives you more right. sin oh, collectors. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and that's and, really yeah. cool. That really can't be understated. Um, one of the biggest reasons that Bloodbraid Elf is so powerful is that Bloodbraid Elf finds your sideboard cards. 
it, having Bloodbraid Elf in your deck means that you're just more likely to hit one of the cards in your sideboard that you brought in, right? Militia Bugler does the same thing. Militia Bugler just finds your sideboard cards. Like, you know, playing against, you know, Affinity or something, I'm, you're just so, so much more likely to find your Staticaster or your Kataki or um, just the back-breaking cards in, in these matchups, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, your Sin Collectors, your... Um, Attic you know, Teague. Yeah. Reclamation Sage. Just kind of like whatever you have in your sideboard that's like a bullet for these matchups. Militia Bugler is going to find it for you. and uh, Or just like give you a, a much, much higher percentage chance of seeing that card. And that, yeah, that really can't be understated how, how powerful that is. Especially considering how powerful some of these sideboard humans are. Or honorary humans in, in Reclamation Sage's case. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, more copies can find, like, Phantasmal Images, which can double down on some of these, and it just it just really going to get out of control. It's, it's really powerful. Right, and that's a huge thing, too, that's a little bit separate from the, like, hey, I hope I find the right cards, this card helps me find the right cards. Like, in the... I mean, less so in, like, the Mardu matchup, because Phantasmal Image can copy Bedlam Revelers and get you up on cards in that matchup. But in, like, the Jeskai Control matchup, a lot of times your Phantasmal Images are kind of struggling to find a relevant thing to copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes those games play out really awkwardly. But, like, chaining bugler into like phantasmal image into another bugler like if they're trying to if you're playing a deck that's trying to bolt all of your guys or like they wrath you and then you follow up with like like bugler into copy bugler like that's a a big way to rebuild and those are your worst matchups and this is right absolutely a a pretty big patch on that yeah the creature decks are always looking for two for ones against these control decks they want to just kind of use all their creatures as like you know, a two-for-one somehow, and that could be a Kitchen Finks. You know, they're going to kill it, and then you get it back, and you get, you know, another threat that they have to kill again. That's powerful against Control decks. Sin Collector was kind of like the, easily the best card against these Control decks, because it was just a two-for-one. You got a card out of their hand, and you had a body. Bugler is, it's just almost even more than a two-for-one, it feels <laughs> like a lot of the time, because it's a card that finds you another card that is likely to be very good in the matchup, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a 2-3 that finds you a 2-1 that exiles a card from their hand. Right. You know what I mean? So that, in these right. matchups, so now is, is Now really, your bugler really feels like a like a 3-for-1 at that point. Yeah, definitely. Exactly, right. So, you know, um, or it finds you another bugler, which is going to find you something else. And then all of a sudden you're just chaining things and, yep. um, and yeah. that just like makes that matchup feel so much better when you're just staring down a bunch of like spot removal effects you know what i mean yeah uh it gives you like the chance to be able to grind out your your jeskai opponent which is crazy so so yeah i mean just gives gives the deck a lot of angles yep it also makes it more uh i think more important and more rewarding to mulligan towards an ether vial or at least a noble hierarch hand because you got places to put that mana for like going into the mid and, and the late game now yeah 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 for sure yeah still still want to be mulliganing aggressively with humans right um for sure and this digs you out of mulligans too like it just yeah card is pretty scary and, and very very good um are you on the like four of train yet or are we not quite there not quite there yet i'm leaning towards a four of i might go three and one in the board i think mm-hmm. that that might be the magic number but i do like access to four in the 75 
Uh, I kind of like the concept of having some number in the sideboard potentially, but it might just be true that the card's busted and it should just be four up in the main. So I think that I'm 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 probably gonna start with four, and if I feel like that's too clunky, then I'm gonna go down to three. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're 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 pretty high on the card right now. Yeah, I think this is a powerful enough card that starting at four and then pulling back if it's not quite right that that seems that seems like the best approach to me. Yeah, so for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I'm definitely hype for some humans this weekend. I think with Bugler, it just is gaining such a such an important tool. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be something, definitely. Yep. Some notes about Modern, other than Bugler and, and humans being great. So, Scred Dragons won the Classic this weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Have you, have you seen um, this list? I did, and I even had the pleasure of talking to this guy over awesome. the course of the weekend. He lent me one of the Steelers champions that I played. With. <laughs> um, so we were, you know, we were just kind of like talking to each other throughout the day, and because uh, I, I was kind of like desperately trying to find a, a another Steelers champion at the beginning of the day, and he, I guess, overheard that and was like, "Hey, man, uh, I got one for you." So he, he was able to lend that to me. So we, you know, kind of kept in touch over the course of the rest of the weekend. And then we were both playing in a classic the next day, and I was like, "Hey, can I still borrow this?" And he's like, "Yeah." And then, uh, and then I asked him, you know, eventually it just kind of like naturally came up. I was like, "Oh, you know, what what deck are you playing in the classic?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, dude, I'm playing dragons." And I'm like, "What? <laughs> what does that you know? mean?" <laughs> right. And you know, I don't, I didn't know this guy. I didn't know like how well he was doing at all the entire time, or anything. So he. Uh, yeah, he just ended up kind of like taking down taking down the the classic, which was hilarious. Yeah, because um, yeah, his deck looks sweet. It's playing four Sarkin. Uh, what's the Sarkin called? Sarkin, Sarkin blood. F- Sarkin Fireblood, the three mana one from M nineteen. Yeah, right. Four Sarkin Fireblood, and uh, you know, just just all like if you want to just name off the the most recent most impactful dragons that we've had in standard it's currently glory ringer last time it was thunder break regent and then the standard before that that had a big dragon was storm breath dragon and he's yep. just got all of those cards in his <laughs> deck <laughs> yeah the, the rest of his deck is full of like chandra torch of defiance it's just like a bunch of like recent big red rares yeah and it's all right it's mono red literally the only card in this deck that costs money is blood moon and the rest is like free basically <laughs> yeah yeah it feels that way for sure yeah sarkin firebloods are i guess a little bit of something right now but i guess that's um, true but yeah it's as far as modern decks hilarious, go, though. and I, I was really really happy to see him have success with it yeah uh so you know this is a super removal heavy deck like Four Lightning Bolts, four Screds, two Anger of the Gods, four Draconic Roar, of all things, um, two Ratchet Bombs. So, you know, it's kind of taking that same, like, Jeskai Control attitude towards the meta. Like, there's a lot of creature decks, let's beat them. And yeah. at least Sarkin, Fireblood, like, he's running the whole the full playset of Sarkin, so at least that can toss away extra removal spells, uh, which you're going to have in any of the non-creature matchups. Like, the thing that really scares me about this deck is stuff like Hollow One, where the creatures are just too big for your removal spells to kill before they kill you. But, I don't know, like, there's something here, I think. Uh, I mean, I don't expect to see a ton of this deck, uh, and it definitely, like, gets the advantage of running all these Blood Moons. Um, so right. I think there's something here, uh, but, it, you know, we're not going to see Scred Dragons, like, dominating Modern or anything. It's just a cool, cool thing <laughs> to see happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm sure that there are plenty of matchups that can be a nightmare for this deck. Like, yeah. I don't know how this deck ever beats Storm, for example, right. you know? Oh, right. Um, so that, you know, or like Ad Nauseum or something like that, where just like your interaction against those decks is is uh, very, very minimal, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm no, sure it looks there like are a lot of matchups. pretty much given up on the KCI, Storm, Ad Nauseum like, right. section of the metagame. Yeah. Well, he does have, you know, he does have three shattering sprees, right? So he, he you know, he's he, he can have angles there, but, um, but yeah, I mean, if you're expecting a field full of like creature decks and maybe even like control decks, I think that you, this deck is 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 in a pretty good spot. Yeah, as long um, as the control decks are vulnerable to Blood Moon, which Jeskai is vulnerable to Blood Moon, so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Jeskai is vulnerable to Blood Moon, and um, additionally, like, just the threats that this deck can pump out, you know, if you're not countering them, mm -hmm. um, then they're they're really hard to get off of the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the five mana 4-4 four four means, you know, you know your bolts aren't hitting it, you, you have to have path. Stormbreath Dragon is just immune to balloons against Jeskai. Mm -hmm. um, you have to double bolt it, and then, you know... It runs one of cavernous souls, so that you know that can that can get the job done sometimes, <laughs> or getting through the counter spells. Um, I you know I think that this deck has a lot of game against the control decks. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty cool, uh, and, and yeah, like actually those four mana dragons are pretty sweet. Like currently, like four mana four four flying. Like I I caught some of like one of Jeff Hoogland's streams where he was goofing around with a a dragon's deck. Uh, like he was playing like a Grixis dragon's deck and every time he played nicole bolas it was just like a nightmare for his opponent and yeah so you know this is just a size that can kind of work in modern as long as your deck is constructed around it but that's probably about right, as much right, discussion right. as as we should have about uh scred dragons in modern oh okay Fair. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah one interesting thing is that kci has pretty much disappeared right now and uh yeah kci i mean i definitely saw it at the modern classic mm -hmm. but it uh i think that it's just in a spot right now where it's just really heavily hated on yeah yeah i mean definitely hard to fight through i think you know like you know like in the team open got a couple of blue white decks that have done well that have stony silences in the board and, and stony silence is just you know very much lights out they can't cycle into their answers they have to have the nature's claim in their hand um people are running a decent amount of graveyard hate right now i, I am wondering how much of it is that the deck is hard to play and maybe people who are very skilled with the deck aren't really showing up to these events you know because like the events that we're looking at are the modern open the modern classic or you know the the modern part of the team open uh, the modern classic and like the magic online modern challenge and like playing kci online just sucks so i think a lot of people don't play it online just because it, it is awful to play online and you know like in the open i can definitely see teams being like i don't know if we want our modern guy to be playing kci like he's okay with it but we're not super confident in his abilities with it because it's really hard and then you know the classic uh classics are classics are real tournaments and stuff but they're not always the highest levels of competition um oh, certainly good players in them and everything but and especially since a lot of times the classic is the fun tournament and if people like have kci but they don't actually really enjoy playing it because it's hard 
then, you know, there might be some of those, like, artificial factor, not artificial factors, but factors outside of, like, this deck is good or bad in this metagame that are causing, like, lower numbers of KCI to show up in the hands of people who really know what they're doing with the deck. I don't know, this is, like, no, more, yeah. I mean, I, t- I totally agree, for sure. I think that the factors you're mentioning are very, very real and often, you know, kind of looked over when it comes to the popularity of certain decks. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the a deck's, like, win percentage, which is this, like, elusive number that <laughs> we often don't even have access to, right. is, you know, is perceived as what's going to create, you know, the, the, the more popular decks are going to be the decks with the higher win percentage. But in, in reality, there's so, so many other factors that are really important that are going to influence whether or not we see a lot of a particular deck. So I think that you're totally right, and then the factors that you're listing are were definitely contributing to the fact that we didn't see a lot of KCI. Because, mm-hmm. like, even though we didn't... Literally no KCI in any of these events in the top 16. Like, it just is not there. But, yeah. like, if you said to me, tell me what the five best decks in Modern are, like, I would probably go Mono Green Tron, Mardu... Hollow One, Humans, KCI. Like, it still makes my top five, I think. So, yeah. uh, Yeah, I agree. In terms of, like, you know, know, what's going to have the highest win percentage, for sure. But that doesn't mean anything, right? Because, like, if people aren't playing it, then you just don't, like, don't freaking worry about it. So, or or if people aren't winning with it, then don't worry about it. Because I'm worried about what I'm playing round four, round five, round six of the tournament. So, yeah, for sure. Definitely with you there. Yeah, I mean, definitely a weird... I don't know, like, Matt Nass could have shown up and, and crushed one of these tournaments with the deck, but maybe nobody else can do that, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, it's within, it's within the realm of possibility, for sure. Yep. Amulet, starting to peek back as one of the combo decks in the format. That's kind of exciting. Uh, Daryl Ayers, his team made the top eight, and he was running Amulet. That's pretty cool. It's, you know, been sort of, um, like, creeping back up over the past couple of weeks. Uh, you see it on camera and stuff. Not, not like, the number one choice, but starting to be one of the go-to combo decks in Modern, I think. And I think that that is another deck who, which, whose win percentage is much higher than its popularity would indicate. Because the, the problem with Amulet is that it's just so impossible to know how to play that, you know, we're, we're going to see players like Daryl Ayers have success with that deck because they've put in the time and effort to, to get really, really good at it. Yep. Um, but it's it's hard for people to just like generally pick it up and, and, and play it well. Right, definitely. I agree. Deck has, like, like, this deck has 14 different lands in it and a bunch of different ways to tutor for lands and then weird things that you do by bouncing them back to your hand and, and reusing them and, and stuff like that. There's, like, s- there's so many tricks with this deck that you... If you don't know them, you can't play the deck properly. And if you don't know them, you get beat up by the deck because you didn't stop them. But yeah, definitely. Like, this is one that I would be looking into right now. If I like if I were back home and just had access to all cards and could sit down and like play matchups with people, which is going to happen soon. I'll be back home in like a month and a half or so, and, and then it's time hey. to buckle down with this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I would definitely be... I think right now, like, I kind of want to master one of these combo decks that are attacking the format from a way that, like, if your opponent isn't specifically prepared for what is going to happen, then they're just going to lose. And then if you're on the right one for the weekend, then you're kind of a little bit unstoppable. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree for sure. As long as you, you know, as long as you know what to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have a good edge. Modern is sweet. I still like it. There's still lots of weird stuff going on. Uh, lots of stuff developing. And if and if a super fair deck like Scred Dragons can can win a classic, then clearly it's in a good place. So yeah, I mean for sure. I I'm really happy with with where Modern's at right now. Cool. Uh, anything else to say about this format before we move on to our question of the week? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, so our question this week was asked by Def Jad. Uh, he says, I'm generally an intuitive player. During a game, I don't put much conscious thought into my plays. At my current level, I think it works out for me most of the time. But do you think of this as something of a ceiling for most people? So, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot to say, I think, on this topic because it's the most common thing that I see in my coaching clients is that I always have them make a like tell me what they believe the play should be and then uh a lot of the time their instinct to go ahead and do their first thought is so strong that they go ahead and make the play on magic online before i have the opportunity to 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 tell them what i think which is a really big indicator for me that a lot of players and i've been guilty of this as well i think that a lot of people need to work on this they think of a play and they analyze it and they come to the conclusion that it's a reasonable play and they make it and and that's just kind of like you know you're you're skipping so many steps when you do that you, you're not really putting a lot of conscious thought into like you know or, or giving yourself enough time to analyze board states and say okay you know what were my other lines that i could have potentially done mm -hmm. um, they just kind of like thought of a good play and they made it right so they don't make they don't put a lot of time i guess is like the the best thing that you can do to you know to put into your plays right so i think that you know when uh when we're asking you know do you think of this as like a ceiling for a lot of people i think that a lot of people do hit a plateau when they've played enough of the game to develop instincts that are decent enough to win them some number of matches right because your instincts can can kind of get you there enough of the time right you're um you're just like your first thought plays that you've kind of like developed through you know okay you know i know that i need to kill this big creature with my removal spell so i'm just going to do that and move on and we're going to keep playing you know what i mean mm -hmm. the the things that you kind of like do on impulse so I, I definitely think that the players a lot of players who are hitting a plateau are kind of stuck in uh, not really going beyond their initial play that they think of on a turn-by-turn -turn basis. They, you know, they analyze the board, they come up with a play, and then they make that play. So, right, I, I do think that that is definitely, like, a a reason that people might be plateauing and not improving as much is because they're kind of stuck in that habit of not really taking the time or giving themselves the time to to really put more conscious thought into your plays and, and, and rationalize why you're you might be making the plays that you you are and it's so it's so easy to do this right and i've been very very guilty of it uh, you know for a big portion of of you know me playing magic is that you know i and i've noticed myself doing this is I, I think of a play and then i make it and then the turn later i'm like oh i could have done this and that would have been way better you know what <laughs> i mean um so yeah, so I, I definitely agree that this is one of the things that can create a ceiling for a lot of people. 
where they they've played enough to the point where they 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 develop these instincts that work out fine for them but you know in terms of like breaking through and just like really concentrating and and making making next level plays they're just not giving themselves the opportunity to do that so uh so yeah i mean if you if you find yourself kind of too instinctively playing too quickly then this might be something that you need to think more about when you're when you're playing yeah and i think this is like this is the stepping stone from being a competent player to becoming a player who is you know more than competent who is very good who is a threat to top eight any given event i mm-hmm. like and this is a, a transitioning step that i am still i think in the middle of and to, you know a lot of times it's much easier with decks that i'm particularly familiar with to decide like the intuitive play is not correct like the reason that it is hard to stop just going with the intuitive play is the intuitive play is probably correct like 90% of the time or 95% of the time but when it's not it's not and you need to be asking if it's not 100% of the time in order to get those <laughs> yeah. those 5% and it's right. that can be exhausting honestly like yeah. and my 5 5% is honestly a pretty big deal right we're talking about shifting your win percentage from maybe 55% to 60%. And, yeah, and that, you know, it can be really, really big. That's huge. And and I mean, I don't know what the percentage points are here. But like, you know, I've been playing a bunch of M19 Limited. And, you know, a big part, a huge part of M19 Limited right now uh, is matching up your removal. And I mean, all Limited in general, really. But it, it seems to stand out more in M19 is properly matching up your removal against your opponent's creatures. And I, like the the easy, the intuitive play is opponent plays a Colossal Dreadmoth, I'm going to cast my Lich's Caress on this. My five mana, destroy target creature, gain three life spell. Because right. that's a 6-6 six, six trample, it's really dangerous, I'm going to have to lose a bunch of resources getting rid of it. But there are times when you realize, like, well, you know what, I have... Like, especially given, like, what you've seen out of their deck, this is one one big part of getting past the just making the intuitive play. What have you seen out of their deck so far? Are they a deck that is likely to have a pump spell in it? Or are they really rampy and they're much more likely, oh, they've got islands. What's in their deck? Well, probably the 4-4 flyer or something really dangerous with flying that I'm going to want to use this removal spell on. And I can throw this, like, two three threes in front of the Colossal Dreadmaw, and that's... I'm, I would rather, in two turns, have that Dreadmaw and my creatures off the board and have this removal spell in my hand. That's a better game position for me to be in. Maybe I lose to a pump spell, but they've played, like, multiple ramp guys, so what's the likelihood that the pump spell is in their deck? And realizing, like, I, I guess I really shouldn't spend this removal spell on this 6-6 six, six ground creature... Like, I think that's a big part of gaining percentage points in the format. A lot of times it is right to just Lich's Caress, the, the Colossal Dreadmaw. But, you know, maybe 5% of the time it's not. And you need to be asking that question every time that Colossal Dreadmaw comes into play. So that the times when you don't cast the removal spell, you, you don't do it. And th- th- it can be really hard to do. But the And I think it is easier... 
the more, like the more M19 limited I play, the more I have a feeling about what else is in my opponent's deck and like what is the value of this particular removal spell in my hand. The more, you know, like I've played so much Living End now. Uh, when I first started playing Living End, your inclination is just to spend every spare mana you have cycling everything that you have in your hand. Get your Street Wraiths out of your hand too, like get to all of your cycle, like get as much in your graveyard as you possibly can. Once you've played the deck more, you realize the value of maybe sandbacking some guys, whether that's because they might play a graveyard hate card and you want to be able to maneuver around that by like forcing them to pop their spell bomb or whatever and then tossing a couple of guys into your graveyard so your living end isn't wasted. Or if it's to trigger an Archfiend of Ifnir or something like that, like the intuitive play is to cycle all your stuff. And sometimes, a lot of the times, that's the right thing to do. But as you become more familiar with scenarios, you can start recognizing when the intuitive thing is is less good. Um, but a lot of times, I think that finding that line is less about just being good at magic and more about that deep understanding of this particular format and this particular deck. Um, although certainly once you've done it with a particular deck, I think it becomes easier to start looking for those lines in, in other decks. But this might be a a place where like training with one deck or in one format can sort of like open up those neural pathways to like you know start looking for those decision points in the future too yeah yeah definitely i think that makes a lot of sense but again like this is something this is a, a transition point that i am still working on a lot like i i am also a pretty intuitive player and a lot of times i make the play that like looks the best on this board on this turn and then, you know, like, I've been bitten. I've used my removal spell. My opponent untaps and slams a 5-5 five, five flyer. And I think, oh, God, I, I really didn't need to spend that removal spell, did I? And I, and I didn't. So definitely tough. And, and uh, I, I think a huge part, you know, that in particular, huge part of limited. But this getting past your intuition and forcing conscious thought onto this decision-making process um, is a struggle, but really important. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that that's just all part of, you know, just improving just kind of like in general, your, your, the way that you, you know, think about the game, mm-hmm. uh, like even in the moment. And I think that that's just one of the most important things that you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Is I think like so. sharpen that skill and, and use it as a tool to, you know, just be able to make better plays. Right. I mean, there are only so many things that separate the great players from the good players. And I think this is one of the handful of things that you can get the like the most equity from from working on. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it for this episode, unless you got anything to add. Uh, I think that covers it for me. Cool. Well, then I definitely want to make sure to uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks in particular to our patrons. I uh, actually just got an email right now. Rick Venutolo has become a new patron, so welcome, Rick. Um, to our, all of our patrons, thank you so much for your support. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast, or you can just check out our website, mtggrindcast.com, for our content and links to stuff like our Patreon. We got some rewards up there, including the Discord. You can also find us on Twitter. I am tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast and Collins also has a Twitter at Collins Mullen 
And you can also hit him up there or on the website for coaching services. Yeah, yeah, if you wanna learn more about, you know, just us, then definitely go to our website. Cool. Thanks everybody for listening and have a great week. Take care.